the permit for a carbon capture pipeline was denied, but the project and the debate, it's far from over. From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, today is Monday, October 2nd. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, we'll talk with executive leaders from Summit Carbon Solutions. The $5.5 billion project now has a different pathway to production. We'll ask what that is. Most people hope their standard of living will continue to rise, and that standard of living relies on things like productivity and inflation. Joe Santos is with us today. We'll take a look at how economic factors intersect with monetary policy and what the numbers tell us about the standard of living in our future. Plus, artist Dick Termas joins us with his artistic perspective. That's coming a bit later in the hour. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. News is first. On a beautiful early autumn day in Custer State Park, thousands of people come from all over the world to see one thing. American bison cascading over the open prairie. From politicians to tourists, it seems visitors can't get enough of the roundup. SDPB's CJ Keen checks in with the stars of the show. Once again, the annual Custer State Park Buffalo Roundup draws thousands of spectators to Western South Dakota. While most locals are familiar with North America's largest mammal, for many visitors, this is their first glimpse at the animal. That includes Jenny Manch, a German journalist covering the Roundup. As a child, I more or less grew up watching Western movies. So for me, this is all the wild, wild west come reality. It charges all your senses, the smell, the landscape, the trees getting yellow in the fall. And looking at that herd and getting to know the Buffalo Roundup, how they are working, the cowboys, how, how, what they do, what their work is, that was very fascinating. The Roundup is about much more than photo ops for the governor and tourism industry. It's a chance for a few dozen riders to take part in what some have described as the world's most intense steeplechase. For others, it's a chance to possibly purchase bison for their own ranches. For these high-profile animals, it's an important day to take stock. So these bison only get touched once a year, and so the rest of the, the time they're out on pasture doing who knows what. That's Dustin Brown, a doctor of veterinarian medicine. Think of this roundup as an annual physical for a bison herd of 1,500. Brown gets ready to start administering vaccine to the corralled animals. For the calves, they're getting a respiratory vaccine. Um, Pyramid 5 is the one that we typically use just because it's very nice, very smooth vaccine. Um, it protects them against most of the upper respiratory infections that young uh, bovids can get. Due to their similar biology, bison are susceptible to many of the same diseases that can afflict cattle. Even anthrax, which devastated a livestock herd in Zeebok County just weeks ago, can make the jump between species. Kayla Brown is also a doctor of veterinarian medicine. She says it goes to show the utility of a strong vaccination campaign. The bison herd here at Custer State Park is no different than any other herd. They're only as good as the care they receive. And, you know, if you don't do your typical annual maintenance, so to speak, on the herd, then it just opens them up to disease and illness that otherwise we're protecting them from and doing our due diligence to keep it at bay. Yes, Dr. Brown and Dr. Brown are married. They also share a deep passion for keeping this herd and many others healthy for generations to come. 
You know, I'm really proud of the work that we do, um, not only with Custer State Park, but with our private ranches as well. Um, the National Bison Association have really strived to make sure that they are having continuing education courses for producers um, and just involving veterinarians as much as possible. And I think they're very proactive in that department. One thing is certain though, the bison are the headliners of this show. Without this herd of 1,500 for cowboys and cowgirls to crack their whips at, there's no Roundup, and the annual Roundup plays an important role in that much sought-after tourism market for South Dakota. However, an unavoidable ethical concern orbits the Roundup for the not-quite-wild, not-quite-tamed animals. Chad Kramer is the herd manager for the park. He says there's no controlling bison. A little story on that, they sold the heaviest two-year-old bull that year, and after he was sold, he goes into another ring while they decide where to pen him. And he made one lap around that, stopped in the middle, took a look, and he took one step and went right over the top of about a five and a half foot fence. And I was just in awe. American bison are not fully domesticated. While some are more comfortable with humans than others, by nature, most are skittish around us, especially with their young. In fact, the animals due to be vaccinated for visitors to watch at the Roundup have to be brought to the corrals a day before the event to help them acclimate to the stress. That raises the ethical question of how to best round up these nervous animals. On one hand, ranchers need to herd their cattle because, among other reasons, it leads to a higher vaccination rate. On the other hand, imagine a family of three undomesticated animals standing alone, when suddenly a rumble comes from over the hill. One hundred and ten years ago, the American bison was nothing but an afterthought on an endangered species list. That's when Custer State Park introduced a herd of 36 animals. Today that herd numbers 1,500. Kramer, who's also the president of the National Bison Association, says he sees the opportunity to work with these animals as a privilege to be respected. You know, there's a lot of things specific to bison and their behaviors that show why they survived. They tend to lead into the wind rather than follow with it. So it's that survival instinct that they've, they've had um, over the years. So in saying that, I've learned how to work with them in those habits and instincts and behaviors. There are serious challenges facing the American bison that have the potential to set back more than a century of conservation efforts. Challenges that are best addressed by people who care deeply about the well-being of their animals and advocate for strong vaccination campaigns. Kramer says for the animal that was once critically endangered, the Custer herd is an example for the nation's continuing reintroduction efforts. With the National Bison Association, we kind of, a few years ago, started promoting Bison One Million. It'll take us a little while to get to there. In the last few, two to three years in particular, there is, appears to be quite a movement of a lot more people getting interested in raising bison. From a small scale, um, you know, 10 to 20, 30 head herds, all the way up to, you know, several hundred heads. As of 2023, the U.S. Department of Interior reports bison, farmed or wild, can be found in all 50 of the United States. I'm SDPB's CJ Keen in Rapid City. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. 
Summit Carbon Solutions has been seeking to build a pipeline throughout the Midwest, including the state of South Dakota. Now, that would take CO2 emitted by ethanol plants, transport it, and store it underground. Some landowners pushed back against the pipeline over property rights and potential safety concerns. So last month, the South Dakota Public Utilities Commission denied Summit's permit application to build roughly 500 miles of pipeline through the state. What is the next step for Summit? Joining me now in the Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls, we have Lee Blank. He is CEO of Summit Carbon Solutions, and Jimmy Powell, who is the COO. Lee, welcome. Thanks for being here. Lori, thanks for having us. Jimmy, welcome as well. Thanks, Lori. So there's a lot of um, news out there in the world, Leo, about what, what has happened from a legal standpoint and from you know community meetings. So I want to back up and take the big picture from your perspective. Why do you think this project still matters? Yeah, I appreciate that, Lori. And, and you know, uh, I come from agriculture. I grew up in agriculture. And um, I'm an agricultural executive. And, you know, frankly, as I think about agriculture over time, um, it's been very adaptive. It has moved and adapted to market conditions and, and market signals that tell them uh, kind of what's next and, and how, to, how to move forward. And again, that's really what we're facing here. There's been step changes in agriculture over time. Those step changes could be anything from the corn yields doubling every uh, 15 years to doubling every eight years in the, in the U.S. corn crop. The ethanol industry in itself was a step change in agriculture. Exports are a step change in agriculture. And frankly, this is just the next, Lori, the next major step change for the agricultural markets, hitting those demand markets that are important uh, to continue to strengthen the balance sheets of U.S. agriculture. Um, I think it, 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 it goes beyond um, just an infrastructure project, frankly, because what it's allowing, it will allow um, the ethanol industry specifically to hit markets that will drive premiums to the ethanol industry, which is, you know, for a large part owned by the, the farm gate. And so from that perspective, those economics flow back to the balance sheet of the U.S. farmer. I think when we talk about those markets, there's low carbon fuel markets that are now becoming available through California or also in Canada and other export markets that are low carbon fuel. They're very important to the future of, of agriculture. But as we think about and we start to be responsible in agriculture about the carbon intensity of our industry, that responsibility comes with investment. It also comes with better economics. And when I think about sustainable aviation fuel, which we hear a lot about uh, these days, every major airline is working through some sort of a process around sustainable aviation fuel. We think about that, that's another opportunity for agriculture to be part of the energy mix moving forward, driving higher margins uh, uh, to the ethanol industry, also then allowing those margins to relay back to the farm gate and putting that, that generational farmer in a stronger position to do with his farm operation what he'd like to do with it over time, where maybe hand it down to his, his sons or daughter or his family. So does this uh, boil down to making money off of the carbon capture, or does this boil down into like a, more, a smaller carbon footprint? Well, I think actually, actually it's, it's a market. It's so, so one really is derived from the other. The opportunity then to, to lower your carbon footprint is important. And it's something that we think about. But frankly, this is really about meeting markets and, and hitting those markets. And, and a component of hitting that demand is your carbon score, is the carbon score of the industry. And the, the carbon discussion, frankly, Lori, is, is here. And we're going to deal with it. And we're going to be carbon responsible. We're either going to be responsible through an incentive where we can actually drive 
performance and drive behavior, or we're going to be or we're going to be responsible through it through a tax. And and so today it's the it's the carrot versus the stick, and it's really policy driven from that perspective. But again, it's driving economics that that the agricultural community has the opportunity uh, to take advantage of. So, Jimmy, I want to talk a little bit about, and we'll come back to Leo for a couple more questions about some of those thoughts, but I want to make sure that we have time to talk about what is next. If I am a South Dakota landowner, especially one who has been opposed to this process and is not happy with Summit Carbon Solutions, talk first about the condemnation lawsuits. Are they all done? And then you're going to counties next. Why Why didn't you go to counties in the first place? So in that umbrella of questions that I just asked you, sort of help us understand if I'm a landowner, what do you want to say to me about those two things? Sure. So, so Lori, we applied in February of 22 with our application to the PUC, so quite some time ago. And then in March of this year and later, four of the 18 counties that we traversed passed ordinances restricting where we could build the pipeline. So going back now, we heard very clearly from the PUC in the Navigator hearing and then subsequently the next week in our hearing, you need to go try to work with these counties. So we have, of the 14 of the 18 counties, if you combine the right-of-way we've acquired, it's about 90%. So we think we've got good, strong support in those counties. So now we got to continue to work with those landowners and then work with those four counties that have passed ordinances to see if we can we can agree with a blank sheet of paper where we can build a pipeline that'll, that'll make not only the commissioners feel good about where it's located, but also landowners. You mentioned uh, eminent domain. So we did file eminent domain, uh, and it was largely a group of landowners, unfortunately, that were with one attorney who we didn't feel was communicating with that attorney. And in, in South Dakota, you probably know, the condemnation process is a very long process. So one way to, to communicate, it may have not been the best choice, one way to communicate is to, is to start that process, and then you've got a direct line of communication with landowners. All those, all those um, suits have been dismissed. And in the future, we know obviously where the opposition is, at least on the on the initial route or the current route. So we're routing around those individuals that don't want the pipeline because, believe it or not, we have a strong percentage of landowners that that we signed in this state, and there are other other landowners that would welcome the pipeline on their property. And so we're working with our local partners, the ethanol plants, and other landowners, and our our land team has been out in this state for a year and a half, identifying those people, and that's another. Uh, opportunity for the the commissioners in the counties. Was that a surprise to you or was that part of the plan? You said it's a, a way to identify where the opposition is. That wasn't a strategy to start the lawsuits and then find out where. No, the, no, no, no. Yeah, I want to make sure you clarify no, that. No, if yeah. I said that, then I misspoke. No, it's not that we, we knew where the opposition was. And quite frankly, Lori, most of the opposition isn't impacted by the, the pipeline. So most of the vocal, and I'm not saying some landowners that we currently cross don't want the pipeline. I, that's That's obvious. But there are a lot of uh, the more vocal opposition, especially the, that, that congregated in Pier, you know, several weeks ago, that aren't impacted by the pipeline. When I say impacted, the pipeline doesn't cross their property or isn't near their property. All right. So let's talk a little bit about what happens next. You're going to go county by county and speak, speak specifically to those county commissions who have enacted regulation that would make really building the pipeline, you know, untenable for your project that basically set the easements back to to a length to say this is where we need if you're going to come through our county you can't come this close to um, other buildings for example what's your path forward there 
Well, initially, we're just we're trying to route the pipeline where we can to comply with their ordinance. That's our that's our first objective. So we want to sit down with those individuals, either in the planning zoning group or in the commissioners themselves, and say, here are the restrictions, if there are any. And largely, Lori, those restrictions are in Brown and Spink County, and it's getting to our ethanol plant partners. So if we don't connect to those two ethanol plants, we can find a path through those counties. But obviously, we want to connect to the plants. And as Lee mentioned earlier, you know, the, the agriculture industry in those two counties is a big part of those, those, those economies. And we want to maintain that. We want to help sustain that and hopefully let it expand and grow. But to do that, we've got to connect to, the, to those ethanol plants. So us and the ethanol plants hopefully can sit down and talk with, with those stakeholders in those counties and determine what we think is the, a, a route that satisfies most, if not all. Yeah. Leo, this has become somewhat adversarial. I mean, you have a lot of support, but also a vocal opposition. From a big picture communication standpoint, is there a way to go forward that is more collaborative? Well, I think so. And I think it's, it's, it's part of the reason that uh, we're, we're being very active, especially in South Dakota and the state, um, being collaborative with uh, you know, the various, whether it be government agencies or whether it be like we're sitting down with you today, these are things that we've, we've decided to try and do. I think it's, there is a bit of a misconception though, that I believe is, is real. There is a, a vocal minority, uh, and that vocal minority is very loud. Again, as Jimmy mentioned, many of those folks are not affected by the pipeline route, and yet they're still very vocal opposition to our, to our, our project and, and for the infrastructure project that we're putting in place. Um, again, we don't ignore that, but again, I think that's reality. Um, as Jimmy mentioned, uh, overall in the state, um, you know, um, we've got 73% of the right-of-way bought, uh, and, and that's in, in the, the, all the counties in the state. And what we find is that, quite frankly, those that we have done, uh, uh, that we've partnered with, are the ones that really aren't talking or, 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 or communicating about the project. They're very glad for the project, they're happy for the project, but they're not in a position where they feel like um, um, taking on, uh, you know, the adversarial voices that are out there. Again, it, it, we see it at the county commissions, we see it at the state level. Um, it, we just don't find it, it uh, as um, um, those voices being, or, or the, the friendly voices being influ as influential as they could be uh, in, in the overall mix. All right. Uh, Jimmy, talk about water rights and just when this pipeline comes through, if this pipeline comes through, what kind of water needs to be accessed? Where does it come from and, and how do you get the rights for that? Yeah, so when it comes to the capture facilities, that's where it, the water use will be. Through the what facilities? Capture, carbon capture. capture. Okay. Mm -hmm. So in the, as you mentioned in, in, in the beginning, you know, there are really three major components of this project. It's the carbon capture, so we'll install a facility adjacent to each of the ethanol plants to pull the CO2 off of their process. We'll put it in a pipeline. That's the second large piece of the scope. And the third piece is where we'll store the CO2 subsurface in North Dakota. So the capture facilities, which isn't part of the Public Utility Commission jurisdiction, if you will, um, that ha that's ha that is a that's a state agency that that regulates both water usage and air permitting. And so we work through the National Department of Resources, et cetera, I mean the State Department of Natural Resources, et cetera, to, to secure water. The, we need water in the process to cool it as the CO2 is, is increased in pressure, it heats up. Um, and, and in most cases, the plants already have that water, either from water wells they've driven on their site location or other sources. So in most cases in South Dakota, we'll utilize the water that's there. If, if not, then we have to go through the state agencies to secure that, that right. Seems like there's a lot of steps that still need to happen, but the first step is what? 
Well, with regard to that, we've already done that. So we've already identified where we'll need water and, and what the permitting requirements are, and those are very mature. So we've got understandings with the plants, um, what we're going to do around water utilization, and we've already applied for air permits and in some cases received them from the state of, of South Dakota. Uh, when it comes to siting the pipeline, then it's the, we, we still think that the Public Utility Commission, like the Public Service Commission in North Dakota and our utility board, have the the authority to site the pipeline, but they very clearly said, go work with these counties. So that's what we're doing. As I mentioned earlier, it's a blank sheet of paper. We're going to these counties and saying, here's, here's alternatives where we could route the pipeline. We want your feedback. And that goes to landowners too. So, um, you know, new, new affected landowners. So where the pipeline isn't today, where we may put it. So we've got people in the field that say, I think this landowner may be receptive. So reach out to them and talk to them about it. Leo, a couple things I heard in opposition are safety concerns, which maybe both of you want to address, but also this idea that maybe this is not the sustainable, scalable model that people want, that there should be a greater um, investment in, uh, you know, renewable energy or green energy or, you know, wind and solar versus this, that this is $5.5 billion project that we're talking about. Um, We'll talk safety in a minute, but first respond to this idea of, you know, a lot of conservationists saying this is not the way to the future. This is not the sea change in agriculture that we want to see. It's yeah, a different one than yeah, we want. Yeah, and I wouldn't agree with that. I think I think that's um, uh, maybe misinformation. Um, green energy, green hydrogen, all those various things that are being talked about, uh, it, it, it takes green electricity. And there's there's major wind farms that would come through a project like that that would have to be developed as well. Today... Carbon capture and sequestration, Lori, is the number one way to lower and get the largest drop in your in your carbon intensity score that's available. Solar panels are wonderful. Uh, windmills are fine as well. They all have an effect on your carbon intensity, but nothing can drop the intensity of carbon and your carbon score more than carbon capture and sequestration. And the great thing, Lori, about that is the fact that it's not new. This has been used for decades. Uh, the technology is not new. It's just a large project, and it's hitting a large industry. It's the first chance for an industry, agriculture, to talk about, in a responsible way, net zero carbon as a fuel source. And that's what's exciting and great about the project. All those other projects and concepts and ideas, um, they're all real, and they can make a difference. And they might be part of that net zero um, solution but they can't make the same effect or have the same effect that carbon capture and sequestration can have. Jimmy, let's close with safety. Um, people are concerned about toxic plumes and how uh, much of an evacuation zone you might need were there to be a leak. Tell us what's new in safety and carbon pipelines at the federal level, those regulations. I'd like to know what needs to be done, if anything, do you think on the state level? And then just some of those misunderstandings people have about safety from your perspective. Yeah, well, Lori, we've heard a lot, a lot of discussion about dispersion modeling. And just real at a high level, um, every project and every operator uses a release-type model to determine what impact there may be and what risk there may be. And you use that then to make sure that you understand what your emergency response responsibilities are and how you would resource those. And you also use it to inform your integrity management program. So where you put in a heavier wall pipe, where you put pipe deeper, et cetera. And I'll just point out that, you know, the pipelines are the most reliable source of transportation in the country, especially compared to rail and truck. 99.99% reliable. So there's 50 400 miles of pipeline, a CO2 pipeline that's been in service in this, in this country, some for many, many decades. And there's even a large pipeline in North Dakota 
never an incident. We've all heard, heard about Satarsha, Mississippi, and some of those people may actually had been, been impacted. What I do know for a fact is that 45 people went to the hospital, none were admitted. So you know, if you go to your emergency room in a hospital, and if a, if a training physician really thinks that your health is at risk, then they're gonna admit you or at least treat you. None were treated, there was only one that was treated was not related to the incident. So I'm not making light of the Satarsha, Mississippi incident. It's, it's, a, it's a real occurrence, but our pipeline will be a 24 inch. That was a 24 inch with Denbury in Mississippi. No one was killed and technically no one was injured. So that's a starting point. When it comes to the, to the release model, we'll share that with emergency responders. The South Dakota PUC has had that and their staff has had that for several weeks, actually a couple of months. And so we use that to inform us and we wanna use that to inform the emergency management folks and the first responders. When it comes to overall safety, I think it's gonna be the safest large pipeline ever constructed. Why? Because of the, of the material that we're transporting. It's also the first large scale pipeline that's been constructed under FEMSA's new rules. And we all know that FEMSA has jurisdiction over safety. And so FEMSA said that no valves should be spaced more than 20 miles apart. This will be the first large pipeline that actually adheres to that. It's new technology, it's, it's, it's the latest uh, materials that are gonna be sourced in the United States when it comes to pipe. And I think lastly and most importantly, CO2 is heavier than air, so is propane and butane and other constituents in natural gas. The difference is it's not ignitable. So there's a risk with everything, especially a pipeline under pressure, but it was CO2, it's much less than natural gas, refined products, or crude oil. Okay, FEMSA, once again, Pipeline and Hazardous Materials Safety Administration. We've had landowners on this program before talking about how this pipeline would affect their land. We'll invite them back on the program. If you have something you'd like to add to this conversation, send me an email in the moment at sdpb.org. We'll keep the conversation going. Um, thank you so much to Lee Blank and Jimmy Powell, both with Summit Carbon Solutions. We appreciate your time. Thank, thank you. you, Lord. Welcome back to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. It's time for our Monday macro segment. We're going to talk today about labor productivity. It seems we've been talking a lot about interest rates, but this is an important conversation as well, and they are connected. Joe Santos is director of the Ness School of Management and Economics at South Dakota State University. He also leads the Dyke House Program in Money, Banking, and Regulation at SDSU, and he's with us now from SDPB's Janine Basinger studio at uh, South Dakota State in Brookings. Joe, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Thanks as always, Lori. All right. Interest rates and productivity rates are intertwined tightly. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about why we're talking about labor productivity and, and really how it's measured. So the, the why first, and then how is it measured, please? Sure. So the, the why first is that no one's talking about labor productivity to the extent that they're talking about rising interest rates. And we on Monday Macro are very good at talking about what no one else is talking about uh, and being ahead of the curve. So here's the thing. Um, so labor productivity uh, drives economic growth. It drives economic output. And we can define it in just a second. But here's the why of it. When we have an inflation problem that we're trying to deal with right now, and we're dealing with it by raising interest rates, um, what could help 
would be more stuff being produced at a fast rate so that while we are chasing after these goods and services, making the prices of those goods and services go up, it would be really helpful if we were producing lots of goods and services so that we've got money chasing not too few goods, which is the way we often think of inflation, but money sort of chasing, you know, enough goods so that inflation doesn't rise. And the reason I'm bringing this up is if we look at labor productivity, which is the amount of stuff, think goods and services, divided by an hour of labor, it's a primary driver of economic growth, labor productivity is not great. <laughs> and so, you know, long story short, the primary driver of the growth of the stuff that we're chasing after with our money, reducing the value of that money, the primary driver of the growth of that stuff isn't... Um, really impressing us at the moment. Labor productivity is not very high. It's It went up suddenly during COVID. That was sort of a mechanical result of lots of hours of labor disappearing suddenly. So output per hour suddenly jumps arithmetically. Mm -hmm. And then you got folks coming back in. So now the denominator grows because hours are growing and stuff isn't growing as fast to keep up. So it comes down. But now, right around now, we're at a point where the data are starting to sort of you know, reveal what maybe pre-pandemic normal might look like. And yeah. the upshot is it looks about the way it did before the pandemic, which was really underwhelming. Okay. So if you want to, to do the math or follow along, I just want to make sure I tell people we put a link up to Joe Santos's blog. You can go there directly at schooled.blog.com. So you can see how all of this works mathematically with the charts and graphs. Super interesting. Um, but, Joe, I want to talk about what we don't measure in mm -hmm. productivity because there was a really interesting article in The Atlantic that I just read talking about work from home. And basically one of the ideas is it, we're not measuring a, a stay-at-home parent, but we are measuring yep. a daycare, right? So if there are more That's people right. staying home, we're not, we're, we're not doing the math for that. We're not measuring the economic. And they used breastfeeding versus formula sure. and said, well, if you know there was programs and policies in place that would create more breastfeeding mothers, you're not measuring that in the economy, but you can measure a bottle of formula. So my big question to you is, what do we leave out when we measure labor productivity, and does that matter? Yeah, so we leave out a lot of stuff and non-market transactions of the sort you described, that would be the, the broad category, um, is not in there. Because again, really what we're doing, it sounds really scientific, but we're basically just taking a top number, a numerator, which is essentially gross domestic product. So again, if it didn't go past, you know, a scanner at a cash register, if you will, it didn't get in. Um, so that's the top number, all of those market transactions that we have records for divided by the number of hours. And again, the number of hours that would be measured employment of the sort that, again, if you will, comes to market. So anything that's not coming to market is not there. And then there's the sort of intangible stuff that maybe is in the marketplace. But now I am thinking about technology and, mm -hmm. you know, for example, AI. Um, where does that fit in in terms of driving labor productivity maybe in ways that we can't? capture. And the reason that's a really, really good point is, as you're suggesting from that Atlantic article, if we're missing it, missing it means we are doing more than we are sort of in some sense giving ourselves credit for. And that's 
goes back to this fundamental question of where should interest rates be and is the central bank sort of being um, aggressive or not. It really depends on whether there's enough stuff for all of us to chase after, right, or not. Mm -hmm. So if we're not measuring productivity correctly, and again, if the suggestion is, and I think that's a reasonable one, that the bias is that we're, we're not measuring it in the sense that there's more stuff than we realize, there's more going on than we realize, then maybe there is enough capacity, if you will, um, to satisfy the demand. And that would be an argument that ends with the, you know, the Federal Open Market Committee at the Fed concluding, well, then, we don't need to suppress demand all that much. You know, there's right. enough capacity out there. If, on the other hand, what we're seeing in the data um, is accurate, and that would suggest there isn't really an overwhelming burst of labor productivity. And again, the connection between it and growth is really, really tight. Labor, labor productivity growth is essentially the growth in output. Um, if, there, if, if what we're seeing is realistic, is accurate, then it doesn't seem like there's all that much capacity to handle the amount of demand that we still have in the system. It's been stimulated really since the financial crisis with monetary and then pandemic fiscal policy. That would suggest we have to suppress demand. And so it's a really good question. If we go with the data we got, yeah. <laughs> it seems like it's underwhelming, but it's a really good point. Yeah, and how does this all intersect with quality of life or stand, I shouldn't say that quality of life, standard of living? Yeah, so the idea is if, if labor productivity, well, the big idea is we like stuff. Uh, we yeah. could, you know, that's a whole other show whether or not we need to sort of just accumulate production, um, really. But if we reason that more stuff is better, well, labor productivity is the key component because that's stuff per hour. And then really all you do is multiply it by hours. You can think of it as multiplying it by people, essentially. Um, so standard of living, if we accept the definition that that's stuff per person, well, we get that with productivity times people. Um, so the demographic piece is really not something we have a policy instrument to control. Um, I can't easily <laughs> increase labor force participation or something like that or birth rates or whatever. So it's quality of life, standard of living is a composition of an economic variable, productivity, and a demographic variable, essentially labor. We can't really do much for the, the, the latter, at least not in the short run. And so that's where our focus tends to turn toward the productivity, the economic variable. Um, and again, it's just, it may spike. I mean, that, you know, who knows, maybe I, AI infuses it. But at the moment, it's growing. You know, again, if we go to the charts, we'll see the last data point for the most recent quarter looks like some version of the data points in the yeah. years leading up to the pandemic. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So how do we increase <laughs> labor productivity in a way that we have the tools to do so? Right. So if so, if what we're focused on right now, let's just say, is the inflation and we want to get that back down and so on, um, the bad news is there is nothing really in the short run that could stimulate labor productivity like in the next three to six months because labor productivity is driven by, as I like to say, um, the ingredients, the, the capital, the technology and so on, and then the recipes, how we bring them all together. And short of some new either innovative piece of equipment or an innovative recipe that brings people and the equipment together in new and productive ways, absent all that, you really just have to be the party pooper and slow demand. <laughs> because again, <laughs> you don't have the supply, you can't stimulate the supply. It's a great, great question. But if what you're dealing with right now is this inflation problem and you're the central bank and you have no lever 
labeled productivity boost, um, then what you have to do is essentially suppress the demand. And th there's a figure there in the blog where we can see what we measure. It's counterfactual and weird, but it's called potential output. And we can see that where we are right now, the actual output is, act is above it. It's yeah. not above it by a lot, but the point is, it seems to me the takeaway there is potential captures what we could do on our best day. Actual is above that. How are we achieving more than what we could do on our best day? It must be demand stimulated. So again, this brings us back to this issue of, you know, are rates going to be high for long? Are they too mm -hmm. high? Are they? I don't think so. I, we're still in this process of suppressing demand. And again, part of it um, has last, it, it's lasted as long as it has because productivity and output really hasn't come in to save the day, as it were, with more stuff that our money could chase after. Yeah. And not so you need value. big innovations there, like and like an, you would need a, big an AI scale, like in your imagination, it's something right. like what AI could provide. That's the kind it's of innovation right. you're looking for. And and it it if history is any judge of this stuff, it the burst wasn't immediate after germ theory. It wasn't immediate after a flush toilet. It wasn't immediate after okay. a uh, a personal computer. So it probably isn't going to be immediate enough here either. Interesting. Yeah, <laughs> I'm. I'm, and I'm curious when we start talking about like you know uh, what I can't remember the exact phrase, but um, something about like a sensibly regulated market capitalism. Yep. Like this yep. is what we're talking about here. This is what it looks like. We're not talking about everything else. You get in this pol these areas of of policy that are outside macroeconomics. Like, how do you convince people to go back into the workforce while you give them childcare? Right, right. And so if, if you're a, a macroeconomic policymaker, you know, we don't have the instruments. They, they would be useful instruments. They would be working the supply side of the economy, probably have some long lags in terms of its effect, but, but they don't have those instruments. So the only thing, this is sort of a, a basic idea that I think sometimes is overlooked, understandably, the policy can only affect macroeconomic policy in the short run, only affect demand. There, there's really mm -hmm. no way, you know, they can't bring about stuff. They could only um, affect our demand for that stuff. And so, yeah, things like childcare, things that would re-engage individuals with the labor force, um, you know, all of that would promote the supply side of the economy. And analytically, it would work to stabilize price pressures because there'd be more stuff. We wouldn't have to fight over it and bid the price up. Um, but, you know, the Fed, let's say, or, you know, the Congress working with the executive branch and the Treasury, they don't have those kinds of instruments and so it seems right. to me what, what they're going to conclude is, look, we just have to continue to suppress demand until we sort of slow it down so it could, in some sense, you know, catch up with supply. Yeah. All right. Well, if you like that part of the, the, the rabbit trail that I went down there, you can tune in to SDPB's <laughs> town hall with Jackie Hendry talking about child care and who's, um, you know, who is part of the solution. What are the challenges that South Dakota families are facing and what are those solutions going to be that's on tomorrow night on um, SDPB TV. But if you are really into this macroeconomic conversation, go to the website here at school.blog.com. Joe Santos will be on an um, ongoing basis on In the Moment talking about those macroeconomic forces. And Joe, I thank you. I have a million more questions, but I'll save them for next time. I appreciate your time. I thank you, too. And we should listen to both because that child care issue is really critical. I have some questions I'm going to send you and figure out how we can intersect those questions, maybe more uh, connect those dots a little more specifically in, in the future. So. Yeah, let's do so.
Welcome back to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Going to correct something I just told you about SDPB's town hall about child care with Jackie Hendry, the host of South Dakota Focus. You can see that 7 p.m. Central, 6 p.m. Mountain on SD.net. It's also going to be live streamed on Facebook and YouTube. So um, thank you for that update. Now, it is a special thing indeed to see the world from Dick Termas's perspective, and that is why the famed Spearfish Perspective Artist is bringing his background and his unique style to the art education series How to Draw Perspective with Dick Termas. A sneak peek of the 12-part series is happening on Thursday at Black Hill State University during the CoLab Art Education Conference. But first, Dick is with us from SDPB's Sue W. White studio at Black Hill State University in Spearfish for a sneak peek of the sneak peek. Dick Dermis, welcome back to In the Moment. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me, Laura, very much. It it's is fun to talk with you always. I was just out in the Rapid City studios for SDPB, and that beautiful Thermosphere is, is there for, and every time I come back, I spend time with it. Art just reveals itself again and again to us with repeat visits. Tell me a little bit about um, Thermospheres for people who haven't seen them yet and how you hope people interact with your art. <coughs> well, um, I do a lot of different kinds of things, but with the sphere, I do everything on the spherical canvas. <coughs> and But the main thing that I do is the six-point perspective spheres, which allows me to capture, like, complete environments up, down, and all around worlds, but they're on the outside of the sphere instead of being on the inside of the sphere. So I, I, make, I kind of turn people's minds inside <laughs> out, I guess, when I work, and turn my, I, I'm a, somewhat of a dyslexic, so I think it's natural for me to, to look at stuff inside out, you know? But uh, that's what I do, and I've, you know, I've learned a ton of stuff about perspective while I've done it, and it uh, relates to all, all kinds of people. The math people even are excited mm -hmm. about what I do. So, yeah. It, so this it, is yeah, this is geometry based. I was a terrible geometry student. I did really well in algebra and terrible in geometry, but part of that is because I think it wasn't. I mean, this is an for the art people, <laughs> this is an okay way to tackle geometry if maybe you're afraid of geometry. It's also that. So the math people love it, but the people who don't like math are maybe intimidated by it. There's room at the table for them too, right? Right. Well, I, I think I'm a, you know, the visual yeah. side of mathematics because I was terrible at geometry too. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, but when I, when I can uh, look for patterns, I'm very good at finding patterns. And I also just uh, like the, the tight, or organized work uh, mm -hmm. so that it does jump right into geometry. As soon as you get tight with your substructures in your artwork, you're right, right on the fringe of geometry. So this 12-part art education series has mm -hmm. the potential to reach, you know, classrooms, individuals at home, people in retirement communities, all of us, uh, you know, who want to come home at the end of the day and, and do something different with our time and explore the art world. Tell me a little bit about how you planned the series and what you wanted to do with it. You know, I, I've been working with this uh, 
perspective ideas for over 50 years. And in a lot of my teaching and when I was in Klamath Falls, Oregon, Sheridan, Wyoming, and up at Black Hill State, I always dealt with a lot of perspective because it was a real teachable idea. And so it, it was natural for me to, to, uh, to do with the work with the spheres on it. And the, what's neat about this new series is it goes all the way through one through six point and, and breaks it all down and, and Stephen puts it into really good classroom uh, so that they can have certain classroom uh, experiences with it. And, <clears throat> but I think it's also good for, for anybody because what it does is it, it talks about uh, perspective in, in, in the normal world. And uh, like I mm. like to explain my six-point perspective is to imagine yourself out in, in east, eastern South Dakota, and you're standing in the middle of a railroad and road junction. You're standing right in the middle of it. And when you turn, if you think spherically and you look and you take on the whole picture all the way around you, above you, and below you, and you look at that railroad, it vanishes off to the north. It also vanishes off to the south behind you. So you turn around, you see two vanishing points. And then the road crosses, goes to a vanishing point to the east. It also goes to the west. So there's four points. And then telephone poles that are running up and down around you are running to a point directly above your head and directly below your feet. So there's six-point perspective. So what I've done is taken that concept of six points and use that for the spherical paintings. Uh, but I've also gotten, you know, all the, all the one through five point up to the six point all explained with the use of grids. So I do it in a little different way hmm. uh, than, than uh, you typically learn perspective. And you don't usually learn that many points. <laughs> but it, I, I think it's, it's going to, uh, you know, I wanted to get it out because I'm 81 years old now and you don't get to live forever. And I want this concept to be out there so people can use it in the classrooms, use it in their own uh, studios if they're an artist type, uh, and uh, experience. Because I know it's, re it's a real solid system. Yeah. And it's just, uh, it, to me, is important to get out there. Yeah. But I've answered a, a long answer for a short question. <laughs> that's the, <laughs> Sorry. That's the best answer of all. It's better than any questions that I asked you because that's just explained so much. And what I always say about your work is it, it, it explains how to see the world in a way that is also mind-expanding. So as you're making that description, I'm sitting here in my space looking in front of me, looking above me thinking about right. the vanishing points that, that ended my feet, you know, below me, behind me. We don't usually navigate the world by thinking about that. How has this that work changed just how you stand in a landscape in South Dakota? Right, yes. And, and uh, you know, and then you can walk into a cathedral yeah. and the same thing. What's in front of you, behind you, right, left? What's above you, what's below? And, and just to have humans th have that experience in their head. Like, I, I'm yeah. not just looking at that. I'm looking at this whole world around me all the time. Every second of every moment <laughs> of your life, you have a different environment around you. And we've just, we sort of didn't ever think about it, you know? I, yeah. I, I at least really focus on that part. 
All right. So this is a, a screening of How to Draw Using Perspectives with Dick Termas, a sneak peek. The author, the artist will be there Thursday, October 5th. Presentation at 7 p.m. at Black Hill State University. It's in the Jones Academic Building. And then there'll be a Q&A after the screening. And all this will be on, S I don't know if I know the answer to this. Is it on SDPB? online coming up it's a 12-part art education series so we will make sure right. we get that information to you yeah. as well it's or whatever their education art edu or uh, education series is yeah not sure when it launches online i didn't check that i apologize so check back to our website and uh, we'll get you that information as well dick termas you're just a, uh, an international treasure but a south dakota treasure and um i love having you on the show so thank you so much for this time i look forward to our next conversation as well i do too thank <laughs> you Lori, very very much thank you i'll see you very next fun time. to talk to you always all right that is our show for today we hope that it served you from all of us at south dakota public broadcasting i'm Lori walsh we thank you for listening